It's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment being ratified, and this week we're talking about the role of race in that fight in Tennessee. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of March 2nd. I'm Natalie Allison. I'm Joel Ebert. So before we get to the special segment this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the busy week that's ahead of us in the Tennessee General Assembly. We've got a whole lot of uh, governor's legislation crunched in with Super Tuesday, so it's going to be uh, almost the hair pulling, but for those who know I don't have much hair, uh, it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> a difficult week and Tuesday, to say the least. Yeah, we all have busy days. Not only is it Super Tuesday, there are also a number of big bills up in the legislature, specifically bills that are being brought by Governor Bill Lee's administration. Those include... Things like his permitless carry initiative, um, FMLA for state employees, his abortion bill that would seek to put in a number of restrictions there. What else, Joel? Uh, there's also the resolution, or not resolution, the uh, the decision to end Nathan Bedford Forest Day, the proclamation that ha- has garnered a lot of uh, national attention, uh, thanks to your reporting, Natalie, last year. Um, there's also uh, just a, a couple of other major bills that, you know, uh, $250 million mental health trust fund, that'll be the first time uh, Tuesday will be uh, that it's taken up in committee. So again, uh, we've been in session, I believe this is now the eighth week. Um, all of the governor's minor bills, for the most part, have either been introduced or, or moved, uh, you know, through one committee or, you know, uh, a handful of things. But the major ones up until this week really hadn't seen much action. That is about to change, though. Yeah, so busy week ahead of us. Uh, follow our coverage to see what happens with these bills, if there is any kind of major disagreement or discussion in these uh, committees and see where they go from here. So now we're going to move to another segment of the podcast. Uh, We're going to be focusing some this year on women's suffrage and Tennessee's role um, in that fight. So here is reporter Jessica Bliss and I interviewing a couple people. And real quick, if you have any suggestions of future things that you want us to tackle with women's suffrage, we're always open for suggestions. So feel free to email us. Uh, This is going to be hopefully a recurring thing that we look at throughout the year. This week on the podcast, we have a special segment with Tennessean reporter Jessica Bliss and a couple guests we're bringing on. Um, Jessica wrote a story just about a week ago on the role of race in the women's suffrage movement um, in Tennessee and nationally. So the USA Today Network in Tennessee is spending the year diving into this issue of women's suffrage on the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which, as many of you are aware, uh, happened because of the vote in the Tennessee legislature to do so. Uh, So this week on the heels of Black History Month, um, Jessica and I are talking with a couple people. One of those is Carol Busey. She is the David County historian for Metro Nashville's Historical Commission. She's also a professor at Volunteer State Community College. And then we talk with Tracy Sharpley Whiting. She's a distinguished professor of humanities at Vanderbilt University. She's also on the university's planning committee for their women's suffrage centennial commemoration. And Jessica leads this conversation about the role of race in the suffrage movement in Tennessee and how suffragists uh, work together and had to learn to work together despite these racial tensions and how that affected the fight here in Tennessee. So I'm hoping we can start off talking a little bit just about what is happening uh, in the country at this period in time. Uh, I know uh, as 
equality was being addressed and the fight for African-American men to vote um, and the freedom for slavery was happening, that white women and African-American women worked side by side in that. Can you talk a little bit about how that uh, evolved and then when that fight was won, what happened next when it turned to suffrage? Most people don't realize that the suffrage movement actually grew out of the anti-slavery movement, equality for all. So when the Civil War ended and Congress passed these amendments, 13, 14, and 15, to free the slaves and give African-American men the right to vote, the suffragists felt, the white suffragists felt really defeated about this. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were furious with Frederick Douglass about this. On the other side, however, was uh, uh, Frances Watkins Harper, an African-American woman. She was a writer, a poet, a novelist in lots of organizations. And Frances Harper said to Susan B. Anthony, uh, you really don't understand what's going on here. Your time will come. But Susan B. Anthony and Stanton were so angry that they were not included that they broke away from other white suffragists, chief of which was Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe, who stayed with this American Woman uh, Equal Rights Association. But Stanton and Anthony went off and formed their own group because they felt cheated by not getting added to the 15th Amendment. So as that evolved and the fights kind of became a little bit different, uh, but I know that African-American women uh, were not silenced, really. They didn't, they didn't go away in a corner. This was a fight for them, and it was, it was greater for them than just a fight for the vote because they were thinking not just about themselves but African-American women, African-American men, the community. Talk a little bit about how they organized on their own. It's important to remember that the suffrage movement for women grew out of anti-slavery. The suffragists and the anti-slavery men and women all worked together to try to end slavery in this country. And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton fully believed that when African-American men were given the right to vote, that it would include women. So they were blindsided in their own opinion by the 14th Amendment, which gave African-American men their rights as citizens, and the 15th that gave African-American men only the right to vote. They made their voices loud and clear. And there was Frances Harper, an African-American woman who had worked with them, and she told them that they just simply did not understand the situation and the importance of giving African-American men the right to vote first. So she worked more with Lucy Stone, another white suffragist, in working to get um, the vote for women state by state through the state constitutions, whereas Anthony and Stanton were constitutional amendment to the U.S. Constitution only. And after um, black men were given the right to vote, there was still a lot of racial tension happening in the country at that time. It was right after the Civil War. You look to the South and there were Jim Crow laws, you know, Whites and blacks were separated at restaurants and at water fountains, and they had to swear on different Bibles and courts. So how did that all play in then to the suffrage movement where you have two 
groups of women, white women and black women, both hoping for the same thing, but feeling kind of this tension of race in between. Here in Nashville, I think it's particularly interesting because Nashville had a very vibrant middle-class African-American community, and these elite blacks were the leaders. We had African-Americans elected to the city council. And in tandem with all of the white voluntary associations for women, you have African-American associations. The National Association of Colored Women had its national convention here in 1897. You had the Phyllis Wheatley Club, another national organization that had a very, very active chapter here. You had African-American sororities doing a lot of things to help less fortunate African-Americans. And so you've got these two movements moving side by side, and it's only natural that eventually they are going to come together and see that they can work together to some degree. However, it is also important to recognize that the white suffragists as well as the antis waved the card of race. They, they told white women, you don't need to be worried about all these African Americans coming to vote because the laws that are in place primarily the poll tax, but in, in rural parts of the state, uh, there were fewer African Americans who voted any, under any circumstances. Um, they said these, these laws will prevent massive numbers of African Americans to vote. And so they used that to reassure white suffragists that this is going to be okay. And the antis just were, were, were determined to show that this was going to weaken the white race, and they were just scared to death that they were going to lose power. So when then the entire country turned their eyes to Tennessee? So we're setting a time period when the Congress and House has approved the 19th Amendment, and it's sent out to the states for ratification. And across the country, you have many states that are voting for it. 35 at that point in time had voted for it. But in the South, you still see this racial tension, and you see these states that are saying, no, we don't want to give any women the right to vote because that means black women will be able to have the right to vote. So many of them are voting against it. And suddenly you are at this battleground where you have North Carolina and Tennessee that are the only two states that are remaining that have to make the choice and all eyes turn to Tennessee. So what then happens here in, in this region to kind of propel that vote forward, maybe uh, address the race you know, situation a little bit, and then actually convince people that this is the right thing to do. One of the most interesting things that happened in Tennessee was in May of 1920, long before the ses special session was ever even considered a possibility, the Tennessee Equal Suffrage Association was having its state convention in the House chamber, and they were going to go through a very elaborate sort of process and celebration of changing their name to the Tennessee League of Women Voters. They thought it was inevitable that women were going to get the right to vote. They didn't necessarily think, think that Tennessee would play a pivotal role in this, but they were preparing for, for the next step, which was actual women 
voting. What's so remarkable about this is that there was great diversity in Nashville within the White Suffrage Association with Irish Catholics, Jewish women joining hand in hand with the white Protestant suffragists in this same organization and for this same cause. What's remarkable about this May meeting is that Catherine Kenney, one of the leaders of the Nashville and Tennessee Suffrage Associations, uh, invited to speak at this meeting an African-American woman, Frankie Pierce. Frankie Pierce had been active in African-American society. She and Dr. Maddie Coleman had the year before registered hundreds and hundreds of African-Americans to vote men and women alike when women were granted partial suffrage by the General Assembly. So Mrs. Pierce came in to address this crowd of white women as to what African-American women would do when they were allowed to vote. And what did she say? And she said, we will use this vote to uplift our people. We will use it to benefit the race. Let's talk a little bit about um, practically what, um, how things played out for uh, suffragists uh, given this uh this divide along racial lines. Um, how did that play out at the legislature? Do you all have any idea if um, black suffragists were among those who were coming to the the Tennessee state capitol to uh, talk to um, lawmakers in the in the days and weeks leading up to this vote? Um, do you know if if there was a place for them and and were they um, allowed to to come to the Hermitage Hotel where, where that was a, a downtown hotel near the Capitol um, where there was a lot of um, planning and 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 bargaining and uh, discussion about this upcoming vote in the legislature? So where did Black women fit in with that? There were no African American legislators uh, in 1920, so they really did not do a tremendous amount of direct person-to-person lobbying. We know that the state capitol had restrooms for men and women who were African-American. The sign said colored. We knew that African-American women and men could come in and observe the legislature, but they had to stand in the back of the balcony. With regards to places like the Hermitage Hotel, no, they never went to any meetings that we have any documentation of at all of African-Americans going into the Hermitage Hotel as equals. Now, an interesting thing about the Hermitage Hotel is that it became the headquarters of the antis as well as the suffragists. And one of the things the antis did that we have no photos of but we do have newspapers description of is they, the antis set up a, a anti-suffrage a museum exhibit as to why voting would be bad for women and for society. And the descriptions are totally racial. They have pictures of Susan B. Anthony with Booker T. With, uh, uh, Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass. They have exaggerated uh, heads, uh, caricatures of African Americans. It is just covered with racial uh, overtones. Unfortunately, we have descriptions of it, but no pictures of it. But they were really trying to put that front and center. The white suffragists were not as 
open about their racism as the antis were. They were much quieter about it. You never saw them doing anything of that nature. And what is really remarkable that is that Frankie Pierce was willing to make a political deal with Catherine Kenny, the Irish Catholic, because Mrs. Kenny wanted Mrs. Pierce to support woman suffrage, and Mrs. Pierce wanted Mrs. Kenny to support uh, a, a school for uh African-American girls who had broken the law, a vocational school for African-American girls. So they created a very unusual political alliance, and both of them got what they wanted. We know today now that uh, you mentioned Frankie Pierce, you know, there's Mary Church Terrell, who was born in Memphis uh, to former slaves. There's Ida B. Wells, who was working as a journalist and marching, refusing to march in the back of the suffrage parades, but marching next to the women. Um, We know that these names are starting to surface now. They've been kind of suppressed throughout history What does this 100th year anniversary of the 19th Amendment allow us to do as far as lifting up kind of those hidden histories of African-American women and uh, really the truthfully the important role that they played within the movement? I think that the 100th anniversary is really uh, going to expand our knowledge of the suffrage movement. But more importantly, I think it is bringing honesty to history when we leave out any part of our society, we are not giving a complete version of the story of what happened in Tennessee and in the United States. Carol, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week and sharing what you know about this. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And now we'll move to Tracy Sharpley Whiting. So I want to start talking a little bit about this idea of I don't want to say women uh, versus women, but it kind of is what it came down to. There were two separate groups fighting for the same thing of women's suffrage, but you really had the white suffragists and the African-American suffragists, and they had different motivations. And so I'm hoping you can start talking a little bit about what was it that black women were really fighting for in the suffrage movement? Right. Black women, I think, of course, had the added burden of race. I mean, white women, too, had the added burden of race. I mean, we don't want to kind of elide race from their motivations as well. So that's what actually set them apart in interesting ways. Um, But black women were dealing with the legacy of slavery and social inequality that stemmed from um, being gendered and raced. Um, And they were also having to think about communities and their children. And so oftentimes what they found is uh, even with men having the vote, uh, change was slow going primarily because effectively black men in the South in particularly could be beaten, lynched. Um, You know, they simply were denied, you know, the ballot. Uh, And so... For them, it was a larger kind of constituency that they were fighting for. It simply wasn't about women getting the vote and social equality for women. It was about communities, um, their children, their husbands, their brothers, um, their daughters, the whole nine yards. A lot was at stake. So there really were some very important black suffragists who shaped this movement. And it's not something that 
to this point in time has has been talked about a lot. Those kind of those histories were a little bit, you know, they were kind of erased and and suppressed. But I hope that you can tell us, you know, there were some very important women uh, suffragists here in Tennessee, and I hope you can tell us a little bit about, about a few of those. Well, we know Ida B. Wells, of course, was from Memphis, and she was a huge suffragist, as well as Mary Church Terrell, who was also um, a suffragist. But the other thing, you know, there were organizations, the Colored Women's League, the National, Associ- National Association of Colored Women. Uh, there was Nanny Helen Burrell. There were a lot of black women involved in this movement. Um, and again, it stemmed, I mean, it was, it was a, it was, you know, the problem is that for Wells in particular, she became kind of eclipsed. Her, her reputation became kind of associated with the anti-lynching campaign. Um, and so her, you know, her, her movement around and her movements and articles, et cetera, around women's equality, um, which you find if you read her, her writings itself are so like, you know, tied to, you know, women's social equality. Um, we're kind of eclipsed because of the anti-lynching um, issue, which again has its own gender dynamics, the ways in which we oftentimes think of men's lives as more important than women's lives. Um, and so, but Church Terrell herself, again, another um, Memphis um, daughter, uh, was also helming that movement and had, had led the National Association for um, Colored Women at a time as well. Um, and so you had a, a, a lot of women coming from different parts of the country coming together around this movement. And these are women who really, you know, when white suffragists were leading marches in Washington and were saying, for, at first, you can't march next to us, you can't march at all. And then, oh, well, you have to march in the back. It's women like Terrell and Ida B. Wells who were like, no, I, I refuse to be put in the back. And they really took their place and claimed their place. Why was that so important? Well, because, I mean, they had to deal with the question of racism head on, right? And I mean, so I think oftentimes when we talk about women, we don't necessarily drill down into the differences um, and the um, the kind of the, the different angles that might um, motivate um, different women's, um, I guess, you know, leadership or desire for social equality in this particular movement. So racism was clearly at the center of white women telling these women, one, you can't march with us initially, um, because they, of course, enjoyed a certain social status because of whiteness. Uh, and okay, and th- well, then you'll need to march in the back of us as, you know, social decorum at the time called for. And the women were like, no, we're social equals. Um, and in order to do this, we have to do this together. And um, so in many respects, black women were also trying to push white women to think of this gendered category, women, um, as more inclusive than just whiteness. Do you think that they were successful in doing that? Do you think that throughout the suffrage movement, they were able to, um, at least the white suffragists were able to change in their thinking about uh, black women. Did that happen or did that never really happen? I think for some women, yes. I mean, we don't want to kind of paint a broad, you know, picture of white women as being kind of resistant sure, to that. Sure, but, but broadly. Think, oh, on the, uh, broadly, no. I think that <laughs> that there was still a long road to hoe. Um, I think that for white women, they could clearly still enjoy certain privileges. You know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 1920s, you know, I mean, we've got, we haven't even got to Brown v. Board of Education and, you know, white women, of course, are, you know, in the front offices. They're the teachers. They're doing all sorts of things to really kind of undermine, you know, social equality for black people and, you know, black women, you know, in particular. So, no, I don't think that they ever really came around to this idea that they were their social equals. Um, I think in the ways in which they claim to try and get white men to side with them with the initial amendment for granting black men the vote was like, no, 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 you know, and you enfranchise us and we can rule this thing together. It was expediency. This was expediency. And as we know, when Tennessee became the 36th and final state needed to ratify the 19th Amendment, uh, 
it was supposed to give all women the right to vote, uh, but black women still faced a lot of hurdles in that. And the civil rights fight continued for a long time. Tell us about how that movement moved forward. Right. I think the thing that we have to keep in mind, of course, women were given the vote, particularly women in the South, continued to face hurdles at the ballot box. Rosa Parks, right? When she was attempting to vote, the person who was preventing her from voting was a white woman. Um, and so this is, I mean, this is, fun, you know, one has to note this. Um, and so, yes, the fight continued with Rosa Parks. It continued with Angela Davis. It continues today. When we think about, you know, the ways in which, you know, we have gerrymandering, um, the ways in which there's a, you know, a clear um, kind of movement to suppress black voters in certain areas. So the fight for enfranchisement continues, and particularly for women. Um, but although I have to say women, black women in particular, go to the polls, right? They go to the polls despite these obstacles. Um, and so part of it is actually pulling, you know, more youth voters in, pulling more black male voters in, enfranchising those who've been formerly in prison. Um, so those become the kind of other bifurcated or trifurcated, whatever aspects of the voting movement that continues today. Where do white women stand on that? Some stand with, some stand against. When we drill down on who votes for who, you know, at one point, they were talking women carried Obama to the presidency. When you drill down on those numbers, not so. It was really women of color, black women leading the foray. Then you had, of course, um, others, you know, Asian American women and Latinos. Of course, Asian American women were right behind black women at like 70, 80 percent. Um, and so I think, you know, white women were, you know, pretty low down there, you know. So <laughs> and in the latest election, we see, you know, there's some differences as well about what are women's issues uh, versus what might be white women's issues versus what might be black women's issues tied to community. So we see a lot of different um, strands uh, coming, you know, you pull a little bit and you really see those differences coming to the fore. Um, I'm going to pause for a second. Mm -hmm. That sort of covered the mm -hmm. what's next in the fight. Mm -hmm. Is there something else you want? We have... I'll yeah, try to go fast. No, you're, you're, doing, you're, you're great. You're doing you're, amazing. You're amazing. I just didn't want to no, ask you the same you, question yeah, again because yeah, because you just touched yeah. on it. I would just say um, now that we are 100 years out, what is our opportunity to reflect back and to say that we've learned and then what like what's to come? How can we use this in the remembering the suffrage movement in the future? I guess would be my I guess would be like the last question. Okay. So we're, we're at this 100-year mark. Um, we're talking about the suffrage movement. And in, in this case, we're talking about race in the suffrage movement and in ways that I don't think we've had a lot of these conversations previously, certainly not in Tennessee. This is something that um, people who in Tennessee who are involved in state government, certainly at the legislature, um, are, are getting all kinds of messaging about this year. There's there's lots of celebrations about it and there's, there's history lessons. Um, so now that we're in this moment, what do you think are some of the key takeaways that should remain um, in the forefront of our minds this year as we're reflecting back on the last 100 years, the fight before that, um, what happened after 1920. What are the big takeaways that you think the people of Tennessee uh, should be considering right now? Well, I would like to think that women understand that they need to collectively come together and that there are women's issues um, that all women need to be concerned with. I don't necessarily know if that's the case. A study just came out to show that white women don't necessarily see women's issues as their issues. Um, they have a very, when you present issues as perhaps 
economic versus a gendered issue, they might be more inclined to listen, but not necessarily in terms of a gendered issue. I think black women see that, see gender and race and economics all kind of bound up. So this intersectionality um, that's at the core. And I'm hoping um, that women will begin to see that, you know, all women, white women in particular, will see that, you know, these are your issues, you know, divorce from, you know, I mean, you know, divorce from whiteness, you know, um, and that the, the, the benefits that might accrue from whiteness, um, and that you should want all women to succeed. Um, this is what the fight was about. It wasn't about particular groups of women. It was about a collective. Uh, and so I'm hoping that that will be the spirit going forward. That should be the big takeaway. Um, if not, we're still going to see so many issues around health care, right, access to health care, educational inequalities, you know, all of these certain, all of these particular issues that are, you know, coming up now. And ways in which some people have access and some people don't have access, that's a women's issue. And we should all be concerned about that issue, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on uh, Tuesdays wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spreaker, iTunes, Spotify, etc. cetera. Uh, this podcast is uh, edited by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. You can find us uh, on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Uh, also, feel free to reach out to Natalie and I on Twitter or via email, of course. Um, as always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. I'm Natalie Olson. See you next week.